This is the Disarming Leviathan podcast. My name is Caleb, and today I am joined by Chris Sturron. He is the host and producer of the Truce podcast, which does deep dives into church history and also American church history and explores how we got here, how we can do better. In today's episode, Chris and I have a conversation about the history of the evangelical church over the last 50, 70, 100 years. We look at some of the ways that the uh, evangelical movement in America kind of merged up together with uh, the conservative political movements in America that got us to where we are at today, where uh, for many people, the two things are uh, so interwoven, they're hard to distinguish as separate movements. Uh, Chris has done a ton of great research. I highly recommend his podcast, again, The Truce Podcast. Uh, And this episode, I think, will help to give us a better understanding of the context we find ourselves uh, living in and ministering in today. So without further ado, here is my interview with Chris. So Chris, you have been doing a lot of thinking about the rise of fundamentalism in America, in the American church, as, as many of us are looking at the American Christian nationalist movement of today, there's a lot of echoes of the Christian fundamentalist movement of let's say a hundred, 110 years ago. Uh, maybe just give us an overview of the Christian nationalist movement, or excuse me, the uh, um, American fundamentalist movement in the Christian church. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to it very much. Um, so when we talk about fundamentalists, fundamentalism, we really kind of need to understand what it, what does that mean? And uh, there's this historian named George Marsden, and he has this really fantastic definition. It's going to be confusing at first when we get to it. It's going to like make your brain hurt, but we'll we'll go through it and talk about it little bit by little bit. Militantly anti-modernist Protestant evangelical is wow. what he says militantly anti-modernist protestant evangelical i think we're pretty good generally with protestant uh we're decent with evangelical um but that anti-modernist part uh is is the part that we we don't talk about modernism very much anymore uh, but it's it's this idea going back uh into the 1800s in tubingen tubingen germany uh that was it was there were some really good parts to it. They were trying to bring in sort of a history aspect of what was the culture like in the time of Jesus when you're studying the Bible. What was the time? What were the, what were what was the technology like? They're trying to bring together this historic idea of Jesus and the Bible and all these things. So that that kind of stuff is really actually very helpful when you study the Bible. Um, but it turns out that they 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 took kind of a dark turn there as well, where they started to say like, maybe we'll pull away the miraculous parts of the Bible. So asking questions about like, did you know, Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really walk on the water? Was Jonah really swallowed by a large fish? You mm. know, these kinds of miraculous things, they started asking these questions. And this is right about in the mid 1800s. And there's, uh, you know, writers like Friedrich Schleiermacher, who you do not need to remember, but he's got a fantastic name to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just want to say Schleiermacher a couple of times, and um, <laughs> it's just a lot of fun. Uh, so they, they had these uh, ideas coming out of Germany that uh, started to challenge our sort of more uh, biblical 
history are a big biblical idea of who Jesus is. And so this, for those of us who are evangelicals, that is actually a threat. It's a, you know, a, a credible threat. And they send people to the United States and they say, at these conferences, and they say, hey, guess what? This is happening in Europe, and it's going to be coming to the United States. So, you need to come up with an idea of how you're going to respond to it. Um, and and so, the movement that is against modernists, uh, that's this sort of, again, um, militantly against modernists, modernism mm-hmm. specifically, is what fundamentalism becomes, or at least how it starts out. Uh, and that that battle uh, led to some, some really interesting things. Uh, so it led to this uh, the book or a series of pamphlets, really, that came out called The Fundamentals uh, that, that started out in 1910. Uh, and it was preached, uh, or excuse me, it was released for a few years after that. And on the podcast, we actually read a bunch of the articles that were inside of that. I had a team get together, and we each took that. And surprisingly, they're really good for the most part. Like there's a lot of really good, you know, like draw people to Christ kind of things within the fundamentals that I think actually most of your listeners would probably agree with. But then, and even there are different views of, of um, evolution and Darwinism that come up within that. And they allow both of those things to exist inside the same book series. Um, but it's not really until 1920 that the f- term fundamentalist becomes a thing. Um, and it was, it was coined by this guy, Curtis Lee Laws in 1920. And uh, it, it, the movement against modernism really heats up right around then. And there are all these articles that go back and forth uh, between theologians and people like William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president three times, and uh, for the Democratic Party, by the way, not the Republican Party, kind of an interesting thing. There have been major shifts in the Democratic and Republican Party over the years. And uh, and it eventually kind of leads to, comes to a head at the, the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925, where um, they were testing the laws. Uh, there was a, a test case brought forward where a guy who was said to have taught evolution in schools, John Scopes, although he never actually did, which is kind of funny. Um, he was, he was, it was brought forward as a uh, as publicity stunt to try to uh, br- draw attention to Dayton, Tennessee, this this town that was losing its industry in Tennessee. It's actually a lovely town if you ever get to visit it. Um, and so William Jennings Bryan, who'd written all of these articles saying that you know um, uh, be- uh, evolution was evil and it was going to bring about social Darwinism, which is kind of a whole different thing. And faced off with Clarence Darrow, who was this famous lawyer at the time, and they duked it out in a way, uh, verbally. Uh, actually, it's kind of surprising when you read the transcripts how little William Jennings Bryan actually speaks, and there's a there's a lot of back and forth in that. But um, William Jennings Bryan gets called to the stand. He's the lawyer, but this is you know kind of a show trial anyway. So uh, Clarence Darrow grills him on the stands, you know, with all the sort of village atheist questions about you know. Are, do you really think that uh, you know the sun stopped for a day, or do you think that Jonah was really swallowed by a big fish? That kind of stuff, and that was that. And the trial ends in 1925 as this. Uh, it's it's basically nobody won. It's it's a it's a draw. 
But then in the 1930s, uh, there uh, a book comes out that uh, during the depression, trying to reimagine the the 1920s and be like, oh, wasn't that a great decade? Now that the depression's going on, do you remember how good things were 10 years ago? Hmm. And that book starts to uh, say that actually the Scopes trial was a failure for fundamentalists. And then uh, the the play Inherit the Wind comes out, and it's a it's a huge it's a blockbuster. It's an unbelievable blockbuster on um, Broadway, and and then becomes a movie and now a few different iterations of a movie and it's performed now in you know high school theaters across the country and that play even makes the William Jennings Bryan character is not named William Jennings Bryan makes him look really really bad uh, kind of like an oaf and and so now there is this wound that's created inside fundamentalism that says oh look at how they're they laughed at us in the scopes trial mm-hmm. how they don't believe in us and it becomes the sore spot when in the moment in 1925 it it was okay. Like it was just a draw. It didn't go super well for William Jennings Bryan, but who would look, who wouldn't look bad in front of Clarence Darrow basically. Um, and so from there, fundamentalism takes an interesting turn where people think it dies out uh, in, in the, the main, in the public. If you're just in sort of secular society, you think, Oh, where did all the fundamentalists go? But they went underground. Uh, they yeah. had their own printing presses. They had their own uh, colleges, schools, you know, uh, conferences, everything, their, their own media empires. And this is something that kind of goes back to like, you know, D.L. Moody had this sort of let's do everything and be everywhere attitude. And fundamentalists took that and created their own subculture so that eventually in the 1970s, when things start heating up between Carter and there's oil crisis and there's feminist changes, and we can get into that stuff if you want, the gay and lesbian movement comes into its own and there's this push for Ronald Reagan, suddenly you start to see um, a, a fundamentalist takeover in denominations like uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, where you know they were like, well, where have these people been? And it's like, well, they were there the whole time. It's just that they had their own subculture. And so the the, the greater culture at large didn't see it, uh, which is kind of a, an interesting thing in the 1970s. And it happens a, a couple different times that people come out of the woodwork and they're like, oh, well, we have our own best-selling books that we as fundamentalist Christians read that the, the greater culture doesn't even know about. Uh, we have our own... Um, uh, speakers who have their own mailing lists and things. Uh, and so they, they don't even really need the greater culture. And that becomes kind of a theme of fundamentalism. Hmm. So as fundamentalism within the church, it feels like the majority culture is resistant. It's mocking. It's belittling. So they yeah. f- have this sense of we're victims or we're being ignored. Yeah. There's a bit of a wound there. Yeah. Yeah. And out of that space, they're driven to create their own, what, what I love the phrase you said, uh, media empire. Right. Yeah. Well, we don't really need, we don't really need the culture at large, but that mm-hmm. also results in this really interesting thing. It kind of reminds me of a kid who goes to middle school, mm. doesn't talk to anybody, doesn't participate in any clubs, doesn't play any sports, and then wonders why they're not in the yearbook at the end of the year uh, to any degree. Well, why is the culture that you don't engage with not like you? And that's mm-hmm. kind of a big question in fundamentalism. Uh, you know, if you have your own schools that you go to, you really shouldn't be surprised that secular schools don't look like you want them to, because there's mm-hmm. no Christians going to them, at least that the no fundamentalist Christians going to them. And that's kind of a recurring theme that, that keeps coming up within the, my podcast, uh, is like, how, how can you 
be upset at a culture that you don't participate in when it doesn't mm. look like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's, yeah, sort of a theme. And a, another kind of fun definition, George Marsden was actually a fantastic guy to talk to. I strongly recommend him. Uh, but he he would also say, yes, a fundamentalist is a militantly anti-modernist Protestant evangelical, or you could just say it's an evangelical who's angry about something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that there, that anger or that militancy is yeah. is a defining feature. Yeah, almost like a combative posture towards other ideas or people who hold other ideas. Right. Yeah. And and again, that has not always been the case. If you read the fundamentals, the uh, the fundamentals that that series of pamphlets, you'll see that they for a while there was some play there, uh, mm-hmm. and you could you could disagree. Um, but then even in the 1950s and 60s and so there there start to become these in in fighting battles amongst fundamentalists where they start picking each other apart hmm. uh, and they kind of lose track of the culture because they're so busy picking each other apart yeah yeah it's actually, purifying it's, yeah it's kind of a sad tale because there were these efforts like through the national association of evangelicals and groups like that to say like hey we should unify um, but it was really hard to unify because they were so busy picking each other apart hmm so we see today uh, a lot of evangelicals, who people who self-identify as evangelicals, who yeah. are very combative to other ideas or people right. who hold other ideas. Right. Uh, how did we get from this era of the 1920s and 30s mm-hmm. uh, to today, you know, 100 some odd years later, where it just seems like almost all evangelicals are angry and ragey and right. uh, yelling and screaming. At least that's what, if you just watch the news right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and social media, uh, it's all over the place. How, how did we, what, what happened in the middle? Like thinking about seventies, eighties, nineties. Yeah. Well, there are, there are so, so many reasons. So I'll, I'll just apologize in advance. Cause I'm sure there's going to be somebody who's a history professor. Who's like, well, you left this thing out. Well, yeah, right. And <laughs> in, in, for the sake of a summary, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to have to leave some things out, but there there are really a lot of different factors that come into this, and some of them are things like racism. And there have been mm-hmm. a bunch of books that try to say that racism was maybe the only issue, and but it is actually just one of many issues. Uh, not to down downplay, there there there's a definite strong racial component to it, but it is not the only. There is also changes in economics, changes in education mm-hmm. policies, uh, inc- increased role of the federal government. Uh, social changes uh, between like building up the gay rights movement and the women's rights movement, uh, the reemergence of fundamentalism uh, and, and the acceptance of Pentecostalism in sort of general evangelicalism. And then there's this this group called the New Right uh, that we can talk about, which is kind of fascinating. Um, and there are a lot of these really big questions that come about, like who should teach our kids? Uh, what books should they read? Um, who gets who pays the cost when we make societal changes, which mm-hmm. is a big one that I'm going to spend some time on this season. Um, so I like to start out with, uh, in, in the night after scopes, there's, uh, it's kind of hard to summarize this era, but we'll do the best. You get in, in there's this big concern because after World War One, there was a, a big drop in church attendance, uh, mm-hmm. which it, people have called a spiritual depression. Although um, fundamentalist and conservative denominations actually grew, you have a lot of sort of liberal fun, uh, modernist de- denominations that that lose a lot of members. And so there's this concern amongst evangelicals in the United States that we're, you know, maybe even within a generation or two, going to lose uh, Christianity in the United States, which is funny. I mean, this is what, you know, 
70, 80 years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. And a lot of the stuff you read, it kind of echoes what we're hearing now. But so there's this big move after World War II to say, we're going to evangelize the youth. And they really focus on the youth. And it's uh, they they have you know speakers like Billy Graham come into vogue, but he is by far not the only one. And there's this big mm-hmm. youth movement and revival in the 40s and 50s. And uh, uh, so you start to see more and more people come uh, to Christ. And so church attendance went from 43 percent before World War II to 55 percent in 1950 and 69 percent in 1960. Hmm. which is a huge growth, 69% of, of the United States going to church. Um, and that's partially due because of these big rallies. Um, hmm. And But there's also other changes going on within um, the United States. So you have things like in the 1950s, a lot of these things that get held up as evidence that the United States is a Christian nation all kind of happen in the 1950s. Hmm. Um, so you get the God is added to the money, the Pledge of Allegiance, the National Day of Prayer, the National Prayer Breakfast, all these monuments to the Ten Commandments get built, uh, which were actually – in some cases, the purple, the ones that are purple, um, in many cases, were built as advertising for the movie The Ten Commandments, mm. um, which is a, a funny little twist <laughs> to history. Wow. But also, uh, all of this stuff kind of builds a connection between Christianity and the United States in our minds. And mm-hmm. we start to think, oh, these things have always been there, but actually they're fairly new within the history of the United States. Um, meanwhile, the United States, you know, we're in the midst of the Cold War. There's a lot of uh, Jim Crow laws uh, and redlining for African Americans. Women are trying to gain rights, but they actually are pretty in, in equal, uh, mm-hmm. not equal to men in the United States. Fear of communism and socialism. But uh, to counteract a lot of that stuff, you get uh, a new focus on things like libertarianism. Mm. And there are groups like Spiritual Mobilization or, or the Volcker Fund who really take up this cause and start to champion this idea of, and for those who don't know what libertarianism is, it's basically the desire to have low taxes and a small government and leave things to local people or to families um, and uh, and that, that idea becomes really popular with people like R.J. Rishduni, who I've heard you guys talk about on your show mm-hmm. before. Uh, and we'll have an episode about, uh, God willing, in the Truce podcast in season six. But um, so you get all those kind of ideas coming together. And then in the 60s, of course, you know, we have troubles with uh, the Vietnam War and Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandals and also Spiro Agnew, who's been um, taking money for building contracts and things like that. It's it's a pretty wild era. And uh, mm-hmm. I worked on this Christian film, uh, The Secrets of Jonathan Sperry, years ago. And uh, the director had this rosy vision of the 1970s, because that's when he grew up in uh, suburban upstate New York. And I was like, you know, Rich, this, this is not what the 1970s were really like. <laughs> <laughs> I know you were there, but it's like a very limited view of what the 1970s were like. And it's hard for us. You know, we, a lot of the times in our tellings of history, we, we say, oh, yes, we know about the 50s with, you know, the, with Eisenhower, and we know about the 60s because of the Beatles, and then the 80s happened, and we just skip right over the 1970s. But it turns out they're, they're a really fascinating decade um, mm-hmm. when a lot of important things happen and they come together. Um, so you get things like uh, the National Women's Conference of 1977 happens, um, and this was there was a, a, a an International Women's Year conference that was held in Mexico City, I believe it's in 1975, and 
this uh, it was organized by um, the United Nations, which to a lot of a lot of evangelicals with a certain sort of uh, premillennialist dispensationalist view, uh, think of the 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 United Nations as a one world government wannabe or something that's building up to a one world government. So they're kind of afraid of it. And then two years later, there is a, a similar conference, but it's just for the United States. Hmm. And that, that conference, uh, it is, it gets overtaken by to really oversimplify things. It gets overtaken by, um, women who are uh, very liberal, and mm-hmm. so uh, they add into their platforms the things they want to talk about, um, equal rights for gay, uh, gay people and lesbians, and also the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, which is very brief. It's a, it's a simple little amendment that gets passed through Congress, uh, but it didn't, doesn't get ratified by the states uh, because of the work of this woman named Phyllis Schlafly, who was a Catholic. And she, um, uh, she also opposes this National Women's Year Conference. And uh, because of the the lesbian thing and because of the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, they put this down and they host their own rally across town in Houston in 1977. Hmm. And this brings together people of all sorts of denominations and even other religions. So the Mormons show up and they're a big part of this. But you've got Protestants, you've got Catholics, you've got Pentecostals, you've got Everybody shows up at this this meeting, and there's this weird moment of of clarity where they come together, and it's a pro life, pro family movement, and it also brings into things like the March for Life is represented there, um, and uh, sort of a nationalist view. They parade all the flags of the states through. Uh, they have a big American flag. They, they it, it bonds a lot of these things, and it kind of shows people like, hey, we can have our own movement. And it's, it's sort of seen as the, the, the beginning of the pro-life, pro-family movement in hmm. 1977. Um, and there's also things that we can get into. <laughs> there's so many different aspects of this, but uh, there's this reaction to a lot, of, a lot of what bound evangelicals to the Republican Party had to do with education, hmm. uh, specifically public education, uh, because um, well, I mean, there's a lot of different components to this as well. But you've got in 1954, Brown v. Board of Education comes out and they say you have to integrate the schools. But of course, there's a lot of resistance to this, integrating the schools. Uh, and then in the 1960s, you've got in 62, you've got Engel v. Vital, which is a Supreme Court case that ends uh, school-sponsored prayers, uh, like mandatory school prayers. And as you guys have been very good to say on the show – Kids can still pray in schools, even today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more about there being a prescribed prayer in schools. And even back in the 1960s, not every school had a prayer. And even the the school district that this case was about had only been praying for a few years. And it was just a very specific prayer known as the Regent's Prayer. And it went, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. No mention of Jesus, no mention of the Holy Spirit, no mention of the Bible, none of that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. It's a very vanilla prayer. Uh, even Not to downplay vanilla, I love vanilla, but uh, it's a very <laughs> bland prayer. And then in 1963, you have School District of Abington Township, Pennsylvania versus Shemp, which ends mandatory Bible reading in classrooms. And so you have um, some interesting phenomenons. And this is where we get into something that's very complex and, and kind of against what gets taught in a lot of sort of pop 
Christian history books. Um, you've already had in uh, in existence Catholic schools; those have been ex- in existence for decades by this point. Uh, but you start to see, because of uh, Brown v. Board of Education, there are what are called segregation academies, and that's uh, these private schools that say, we're not going to integrate our schools. And Mm -hmm. you can have that in your public schools, but we're not going to have it in our private schools. But you also have, because of Anglevy Vital and uh, School District of Abington Township versus Shemp, you have uh, this desire to have private Christian schools. And uh, what what gets really complicated in all of this is that we tend to blend all of them. And we say that all Christian schools – were segregation academies, which is actually not the case. Uh, the, and that's the, that's the controversial bit that unfortunately mm-hmm. I think people are going to get really upset about my, my season. Um, they, they, it was, it's understandable about why they conflated that. So this is, this is why it got conflated. Uh, first of all, in 1954, there were 123 non-Catholic schools in the entire United States. Uh, as far as private schools. By 1970, there were almost 20,000. So there was this hmm. huge boom uh, in just you know uh, about 16 years. Uh, there was this massive, massive explosion of thousands of private schools. And um, uh, in, 19, in the 1970s, um, you get this, and again, it's a very interesting time, uh, you get this really interesting bonding of things because i think it was in 1972 i'm trying to find the date but the the the, uh, the the american government starts trying to crack down because these private schools want to keep their nonprofit status and there's mm-hmm. nothing we as christians love more in the united states than our nonprofit status um and they start to crack down and they say if you're not going to integrate your schools we're going to take away your nonprofit status and and so the they make an exception for Christian schools. And a bunch of segregation academies say, well, heck, we'll just add the word Christian into our school and we'll be able to keep our nonprofit status. And so you start to see this blending where you have public schools, Catholic schools, Protestant schools, segregation academies, and then segregation academies that are pretending to be Christian schools. Um, and there were definitely there were definitely Protestant schools there were also segregation academies. I mean, mm-hmm. you can look at Jerry Falwell and his schools as an example. They, those things definitely existed. But there's this, this interesting bleed over where in order to keep their nonprofit status, um, these segregation academies start claiming that they're Christian, even though they don't necessarily teach any actual religious materials. And um, so you have all these things where Christians have already been getting involved in protests like what Phyllis Schlafly organized with an, uh, against the National Women's Conference. Um, there's uh, Anita Bryant's crusade against homosexuals in 1977, which we can get into, but it's a really sad chapter. <laughs> uh, in 1974, there are all these fights against textbooks, uh, uh, and these are organized by Christians. And so mm-hmm. these things have already been going on, but they didn't really coalesce. And until this big issue of how are we going to keep our private schools, um, mm-hmm. and 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 because of that conflate conflation of race and money and uh, religion and things, it gets very sticky and it gets it gets really hard for us to talk about even now, and and uh, and a lot of these things come together under the Carter administration. Um, so to kind of wind it back to politics. Uh, Carter being a Democrat and Carter being an evangelical, but he was one 
that evangelicals in some ways were really excited about when he came in office because he was, you know, uh, an evangelical. He was a Bible believer. But he also walked a lot of fine lines where he uh, was against abortion on a private level, but what said he would not uh, he would not veto any legislation that came out to protect abortion. So that's that's a little nuanced for some of us. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Uh, but uh, he also has trouble because the gas prices have gone way up. There's an oil crisis. Um, he gets blamed for this National Women's Conference because his wife attends it. Um, he had an interview, a famous falling out, because he had he got interviewed by Playboy magazine, you know, the, um, the porno- pornographic magazine. And uh, so there are a lot of things that stack up against him. Whereas Ronald Reagan comes out and again, there's been this growing movement that says we need to become um, more libertarian. We need to have a smaller government. We need to keep the government out of our private lives. And this has been building for decades by now, but it, all the chickens really come home to roost during this uh, battle between uh, Carter and Reagan. And Reagan really starts to take the, the sides of conservatives and start to say, I, you know, I see you. Uh, he establishes you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> a committee of people whose job it is to try to wrangle uh, conservatives or evangelicals into his, to follow him, which is really <clears throat> kind of brilliant on his part. Uh, but there's also, he's got the backing of this big, well, this organization called the New Right, this movement called the New Right, and it's this group of guys, you could fit them into a living room initially. <coughs> Excuse me. And they um, they have this idea that they want to create a smaller government uh, by uh, pulling out the, the funding for it. Excuse me, I have got something in my throat. <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> well, God what I hear you say, yeah. maybe, yeah. Just to, so like, when we think about fundamentalism rising 1910s, 1920s, yeah, there's this uh, feeling or sense within some of the leaders that uh, the culture is against us. They're belittling yeah. us. We don't have power anymore. And right. so they create their own institutions. They create their own media empires. And then there's this red scare post-World War II sure. where you've got national panic about communism. And of course, with communism comes atheism. And so it becomes um, uh, critical as an American for me to identify my religious beliefs. And so there's this uptick in religious devotion, or at least people saying I'm a Christian church attendance, things like that. Right. And this is a time where there's a lot of money coming into, you know, the church and the evangelical industrial complex. Right. Uh, you've got publishers growing like crazy, media outlets, and mm-hmm. this Christian subculture has this massive influx of not only people, but also their wallets. And then you right. get to the massive cultural shifts of the 60s and 70s. And again, many evangelicals, many Christians are feeling like the culture is against us. They're trying to take away what's ours. Uh, we used to have influence over the culture, and now they're taking it away. Right. And now you're getting into the 70s and 80s where you've got this really bizarre thing happening where you have an evangelical in office, but because he's not combative against, quote unquote, the bad guys, right? Uh, he's not our guy. And so instead, we'll take Reagan, who 
is not an evangelical, or at least right. a movie star, California, wealthy. Divorced. Uh, divorced, um, but because he says the right things. And right. because some of his policies, especially policies around money, uh, there's this move to say, oh, this is the quote-unquote Christian candidate. And you right. see this merging of uh, theological conservatism, fundamentalism, evangelicalism, with political conservatism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is 20 years, or excuse me, this is like 40 years ago. Uh, how does what we see today in the rise of the statements like, or the statistics like 86% of evangelicals voted for Trump. Oh, sure. And many of them say things like, he's the Lord's anointed. He's God's man. He's the one who's going to defend the church. And in Donald Trump's own words, he's the one who's going to protect God. Mm-hmm. How, how do you go from Jerry Falwell Sr., Pat Buchanan, Pat Robertson, elevating people like Reagan and Bush to today? What happened? <laughs> Well, it's gosh, it's such a giant question because if you look at that idea of 86% of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in uh, 2016, what what a survey showed, and I got into this in season one of the Truce podcast, is is that actually most of the people did that for economic reasons and not because of things like uh, abortion, which is kind of a mind blower. <laughs> When it comes down to it, and it's why I spend so much time on economic concerns within uh, my show, because we don't like to talk about economics, but they impact us a lot. Um, even things like gas prices. I even I, I drive a school bus when I'm not hosting the podcast, and today they were griping about gas prices uh, mm-hmm. in, in my department. It's it's very much we we process. They they say all politics are local. Um, and a lot of that has to do with how I feel and, mm-hmm. and what's what's marketed to me. But it also in, involves, um, if I can have some compassion, and this maybe is the compassion part, um, we are all so busy in our lives. Uh, if you have kids, you're taking them to soccer and sports and what's for dinner. And it's very difficult to be an adult now. I mean, you have to keep up with, you know, planning for retirement and, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, universal healthcare. And so you have to figure out what health care looks like. Um, so we are all looking for simplistic answers for things, which is also, I think, unfortunately, why I fall into this pit where I just ramble about, you know, I just went on for, a, you know, 10 minutes about uh, the new right and the National Women's Conference, because it's really hard for us to hear complicated answers. Uh, mm-hmm. And so when somebody comes up to us and we've been marketed to for years by saying these guys are good and these guys are bad, it's 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 very easy for us to fall into that. And it's welcome because it's hard to process all of this complicated information and make nuanced decisions. Uh, so to just have so some compassion on people who are pulled into this movement, the, the black and white vision is, is really nice. Um, and some of the people who helped establish that were these guys in the new right um, because they they had this slogan that they went by that was coined by a guy named Howard Phillips and it was we organize discontent mm. um, and so they they in the 1970s were able to rally a bunch of money around for their candidates not just for Reagan but for other candidates and they did it by uh, uh, par- uh, polarizing people. 
and and organizing discontent and realizing that was easier than organizing people around facts and figures and things. And they did it through uh, bulk mail, which is something we still see today, uh, you know, even through emails and things, but they would send very targeted email or emails. They would send very targeted mailings out to people uh, asking for money because they know we can get money from this certain group of people. Or if some senator said something that they didn't like, they would blast people just in that senator's district. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very... Uh, uh, sophisticated ways of doing things, even back in the 1970s. Um, so it's it's funny how much of it goes back to that time, <laughs> if I can say that. And these, these battles hmm. over economics and what do we want. But then also you've got similar marketing things that you hear about, you know, we should have school prayer. Uh, but, you know, honestly, there are a few people alive today who lived in a time when we had school prayer, but it gets marketed as if it was taken away yesterday. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been gone for a very long time. Uh, and we've somehow maintained having Christians in the United States. Um, it, I, I think a lot of it just comes from that immediacy and this, this sense, and you get it from the, that Make America Great Again slogan, which by the way, was a Reagan slogan. Um, you, you get this idea that there was some great time back in the day. And I think when I've talked to people, they generally are talking about the 1950s mm-hmm. when they're talking about anything. But again, that comes with a real problem of, are you really looking in the 1950s for what, for what they are? Um, but yeah, it's uh, the desire to go back to the way things never were. Yeah. As, yeah, as you said, um, it's an imagined, it's imagined past. It's an yeah, it's an imagined past, and but also there we operate very much by wounds, and we mm-hmm. hold on to these things. And I mean, I think you can see this in the the battles right now in Israel. Uh, these are ancient wounds that these these sides are fighting over. It's the same with uh, um, fundamentalism fighting against modernism. Uh, there are there are things that they're looking for words that they're looking for that say, I, I am very busy. I don't have time to find out who you are. I'm going to put you in this little box. And I just mm-hmm. want to see if you're using my correct verbiage for things. If you're not, that means you must be in this other camp. Um, and you can see how that's very helpful uh, and why, why it makes it easier to, to see the world that way. Mm-hmm. But it also hurts us in, in doing ministry and actually putting out the word of God, because it allows us to dismiss people, yeah. which is something that Jesus really didn't do. Uh, yep. <laughs> well, and Chris, you're getting to, I think, just as we kind of conclude our time together, help coach us as, as we think about ministering to people, right? So you've right. given us this long history, and we recognize that how we got to today was insanely complex. It is. Uh, and I hope, and yeah, I hope I didn't bore anybody with all no, that. No, no. <laughs> it's so important to notice because, you know, complex realities mean that we have to be wise in engaging with people. Uh, right. It's not just a simple analog, you're good, you're bad. So just stop being bad and join the good team. Uh, and there's all sorts of threads operating in people's lives simultaneously, oftentimes subconsciously. So as we seek right. to minister to people who maybe maybe have kind of a, a an imagined or a nostalgic-based past, or maybe f- we run into folks who think, you know, like the church has run America just fine up until the bad people took over. Uh, Did that we? Kinda, that kind of <laughs> narrative of, you know, Christians have always been in charge. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, then, and, oh, okay. and then something happened in the, you know, 80s or 90s where we lost it. Um, yeah. It was, we're ministering to people who have that kind of a vision of the past. 
Right. Uh, and they're animated and they're, they're taking that fundamentalist posture of we are militantly anti people who aren't like us. Right. Yeah. Uh, the woke, the, the left, the Marxist, the whatever it is. Coaches, give us a little coaching on how it is that we can best minister to them. Well, I think asking really good questions is helpful. And what I mean by that is um, if you can get somebody to really think through their process, I think that 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 can be helpful for them to actually voice it. And so I've done this a few times with uh, Ingle v. Vital, which again was that that court case that uh, ended school prayer, mandatory school prayer in the United States. And one of the the fun exercises I've had people run through is say like, listen, I let's just come up, what would be the ideal prayer if you could come up with a prayer that would not offend anybody who was a Protestant uh, or even just a, who was a Christian? And so you get into this weird thing where if it's hard to come up with the ideal prayer. Uh, right. you know, and if you can walk them through that idea, because let's say you want you choose the Lord's Prayer. Well, the Lord's Prayer has no mention of Jesus. Um, it really does. I mean, there's uh, and then the last two lines of Lord's Prayer are not said by Catholics. And so you that would be very offensive to Catholic believers. And, and if you can kind of bring people to this point where you can see, oh, it's actually, it's really much more complicated than just having a prescribed prayer in that particular instance. And so you can bring that into whatever conversation you're having. If somebody says, oh, well, you know, gas prices were lower under Donald Trump uh, and, you know, they're so much higher under Joe, Joe Biden. Uh, you can start to just be like, you know, gosh, I've never really understood this. How does a president control gas prices? You know, like, and really talk that out because the the problem mm-hmm. is we we hear people say stuff like that, and you're like, oh, wait a second, I actually don't know. Is there a knob? Is there a button? You know, do they fill out a form? Like, how does the ga- how does the president control gas prices? And a lot of the times, it's just asking, and don't be sarcastic like I just was. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if a lot of the times, if you can help people think through even small assumptions like that, and to be like, oh wow, it's actually fairly bit more complicated. Mm-hmm than I thought. Um, I think that, that that can go a long way towards drawing people back to the truth. Or else, uh, another thing that's been helpful has been to say, like, uh, what if God, whatever issue you've got, if you've got an issue brought up, and I, if you said, okay, what if God called you to give that up? Just challenge mm-hmm. people. Like, what would that actually look like in your life to let that issue go? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really good one for even those of us who are not fundamentalists, uh, you know, because we can get so occupied with some idea mm-hmm. or some notion that we lose track of reality and what it means to do the work of God. And we're no longer mm-hmm. any good as missionaries. And and we have to just ask ourselves, what what would it mean if God asked you to give that thing away? Um, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Leading with questions, earn questions that are honest, you know, not sarcastic or not like tricks and humanizing the other person. And then asking them to think through how is the Lord shaping your convictions on this and what would it look like to give up? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard, but thank you for your ministry and doing this. I've really appreciated uh, listening to this show. I think it's, it's helps to equip people. Yeah. Thanks Chris. And where can people find you and your work? Absolutely. You can find the Truce Podcast anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. And that's T-R-U-C-E. Awesome. Cool. Well, Chris, thanks for being with us today, man. I appreciate it. It's been a real honor. Thank you so much. Mm